वसुदेवसुतमचाणूरमर्दनम देवकी परमानंदम कृष्णम वंदे जगद्गु So we have been studying the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, which specializes in meditation. Meditation for what? Meditation for self-realization or realization of our nature as Brahman. And um, we were on verse number twenty-seven. We had finished, and I think we're going to go on to twenty-nine onwards. So till now, Krishna has taught Arjuna the method of meditation. all the practical details uh, first of all of course the moral uh, ethical preparation given by karma yoga and then you know how to sit the posture the breathing um, where to keep your uh, eyes and then the withdrawal of the senses and focus and then deepening the meditation up to samadhi and that leads to that uh, moment intuitive moment of realization that i am the atman now in the 28th verse krishna says verse number 28 chapter 6 yunjanevam sadatmanam yogi vigata kalmasha sukhena brahmasam sparsham atyantam sukham ashnute the yogi was entirely free from taint constantly controlling the mind thus attains easily the infinite bliss of union with brahman yunjan evan practicing in this way which way the way which has been taught till now um sadatmanam all the time all the time in the sense of continuously systematically giving it some effort for a long period of time vigata kalmasha purified so this is is stressed again and again this is very important the moral and ethical practices which leads to a satvik state of mind a pure state of mind without which these things are not possible neither deep meditation is not is possible nor genuine love of god is possible and let alone that enlightenment i am brahman these are not possible one uh, swami senior swami gave us an ancient example that without purification of mind Uh, without the sufficient preparation when one engages in vedanta one may actually feel that i have got it i have understood what's being taught uh, but how do i know whether it's real or not the test is very simple are you getting the result does it take you across sorrow has it taken you beyond samsara uh, are you really uh, can you honestly claim that you do not have suffering in your life and uh, can you honestly claim that you are completely at peace with everything you one can always take a look at oneself one's own inner state so what is that that feeling that i've got it so it's an ancient example this swami swami pitambaranandji is a old swami he told us that uh, um it's like a man sitting under a mango tree near a like a pool there's a mango tree and in the reflected in the pool he sees a mango and he says ah so this is what is eating the mango no you haven't even seen it let alone touch it nor smelt it nor tasted it let alone eating it completely so you are just seeing a reflection of the mango 
And then it remains to be seen and touched and savored and then eaten and nourished. So that is the extent of uh, enlightenment, which is or the ex extent of realization. This is the difference. And the difference is not so much in technique. It's not so much in philosophy. Uh, it's basically the purification of the mind. Vigata Kalmasha, purifying the mind. Sukhena, easily. So, uh, without the purification of mind, it's a terrible struggle. Uh, with sufficient purification, sufficient uh, purity of mind, giving up desires, uh, uh, contentment regarding the world, uh, genuine love of God arises or genuine inquiry into Brahman arises. And that person can, uh, spiritual life becomes easy for that, easier for that person. Brahma samsparsham literally means the touch of Brahman. Now, from an Advaitic perspective, there's of course no touch of Brahman. You are, uh, you are Brahman. That's what you realize. Atyantam Sukhamashnutam attains um, limitless bliss. What is this limitless bliss? We have discussed this earlier. Um, the Vishayananda, Bhajanananda and Brahmananda. The Ananda which comes from contact with sense objects. The joy of, of spiritual life, of renunciation, of devotion, of meditation, of Vedantic inquiry and selfless service. So this is Bhajanananda. And finally, beyond all of this is Brahmananda, the bliss that is Brahman itself. It's not another kind of bliss, but it is Brahman. So this is the result. The nature of this illumination is now given in the next verse, 29th verse. What is the nature of this? So Sri Krishna never tires of coming back to this theme. And it's a magnificent verse. Basically, this is what I will dwell on for the rest of today's class. Um, let me chant it and we'll see why it's so great. 29th verse. Sarvabhutasthamatmanam sarvabhutani chatmani ikshate yoga yuktatma sarvatra samadarshanaha. What does it mean? That man whose mind is absorbed in yoga and who sees the same Brahman everywhere, sees the self in all beings and all beings in the self. So the self in all beings and all beings in the self. This is a phrase which we come across time and again across the Vedantic texts, right from the Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita and other places also. It's scattered, but this very phrase, it comes multiple times. Um, Sarvabhutasthamatmanam, the self in all beings and all beings in the self. Just examples, most famous example, of course, the first earliest one we get is from the Isha Upanishad, the famous Isha Upanishad, which starts off with that very famous mantra, Ishavasya midam sarvam, yatkincha jagatyam jagat. In everything that moves and does not move in all beings, in everything that entity that exists, God alone pervades everything, or every, you, have to you have to see God in everything. So that is the famous first line of the first mantra of the Isha Upanishad. Mahatma Gandhi famously said that uh, if all of Hinduism were to disappear, and just this first line of the first mantra of this one Upanishad remained, all of Hinduism would remain. So that's the first one, but there are other famous mantras there, which I will chant to you now. 
This is from the Isha Upanishad, which says exactly what we read in the Gita just now. What does it say? It says, the sixth and the seventh mantras of the Isha Upanishad. Yastu sarvani bhutanyatmanyevanupashyati sarvabhuteshu chatmanam tatona vijugupsati. He who sees all beings in the self and the self in all beings feels no hatred by virtue of that realization. Seventh mantra. Yasmin sarvani bhutanyatmeva vibhudvijanataha. Sorry. Yasmin sarvani bhutanyatmeva bhudvijanataha. Tatra komoha kashoka ekatvam manupashyataha. When to that one of realization all beings become the very self, then what delusion? And what sorrow can there be for that seer of oneness? Or in another way, translated, in the self, capital S, of the one who is realized, in which all beings become the self, what delusion and what sorrow can remain for that seer of oneness? More or less the same thing. So you see, Isha Upanishad says exactly what we just read. Then... Um, a new verse from the Manusmriti and that's interesting I just came across it today the 12th chapter the um, last chapter actually of the Manusmriti the 91st verse of the 12th chapter yes Sarva Bhuteshu Jatmanam Sarva bhutani chatmani, saman pashyan atma yaji, swarajyam adhigachati. The atma yaji, which means the one, the self-sacrificer, we'll see what that means later, um, who sees the self in all beings and all beings in the self, by that realization, sees the sameness everywhere, oneness everywhere. And attains or realizes his own empire. Swarajya Madhigachati. You realize you attain to your own empire. All right, we'll see that a little later. Basically, what does it mean? See, Sarva Bhutastamatmanam Sarva Bhutanichatmani. To see the self in all beings and all beings in the self. Now notice the very first thing, it's, it's uh, counterintuitive. Where do I find myself? Only in myself here. And everybody is not myself. You are all not myself. Everybody is different from me. Uh, I am separate from everybody else. The moment I say Sarva Bhutasthamatmanam in all beings, in all living beings, I find myself. This distinction between I and the other is erased. Swami Virajanandi, beautiful, beautifully, he was the president of our order. He beautifully says, 
this body and this world are revealed to me at once. Either I am all of it or none of it. This is the meaning of this phrase, actually. So when I say I find myself in all beings, uh, in that case, the, this whole distinction of I and the other, I and you, this is I and this is mine, and that's you and that's yours. This distinction disappears. This is the um, first thing that we get here, that you see an underlying oneness. Um, and this is the Sankhyan realization, not Sankhyan, sorry. This is the realization that I'm not the body, not the mind, I'm this pure consciousness. And this pure consciousness alone is the same in all beings. In 13th chapter, Krishna will say, Kshetragyam Chapimam Vidhi Sarva Bharata. In all these fields, there is the knower of the field in each body and mind, the knower, you, the one you feel yourself. In all these fields, the knower of the field is actually one. The fields are different, bodies are different, minds are different, but behind them there is one knower of the field. So this is the first meaning. The, the distinction between I and you, I and mine and everything else is other than this. This distinction disappears. I am one in all beings. But further, Sarva Bhutani Chatmani, all beings are in me. This means the distinction between, and I'll explain this, technically it is called Adhishthana and Adhyastha. The distinction is not there. It's not like there are two things, you know, there's one reality, underlying reality, and there is a, something else separate, a world and other beings. There's one consciousness, and then everything else is separate from it. The universe is separate, material beings are separate, our bodies are separate, there are millions of bodies and minds. No, all of them are nothing but this underlying reality. It erases the distinction between the pot and the clay, between the ornament and the gold. We must understand what gold is to see the one, one reality underlying all ornaments. But then we must also see all the ornaments are not different from this gold. First of all, what did you do? Gold is not a bracelet. Gold is not a necklace. Gold is not a, not a ring. Um, water is not a wave or a bubble or a foam or surf. You know what water is. You know what gold is. Having discovered that, the one reality underlying all waves, all surf and all foam, having discovered that, you realize that waves, surf, foam are nothing but water. It's one reality. You realize that the necklace and bracelet and ring are nothing but gold. It's one reality. A variety of pots and jars, they are nothing but clay. It's one reality. First you must separate and then you see the oneness. In Sanskrit, this is called Adhishthana and Adhyastha. The ground or the, the foundation and the appearance, they are one and the same thing. Um, let me go back to the the Manusmriti verse, it's, it's very interesting. Atma Yaji, it says, Atma Yaji, uh, Yaji means the sacrificer, the one who does Vedic sacrifices, Yajna. Uh, so, that one sees all beings, um, sees this, uh, all beings in the self and the self in all beings and um, sees oneness, and realizes his own empire. Uh, that, that's the beautiful way of Swarajya, uh, beautiful way of expressing uh, liberation, enlightenment. So what is this self-sacrificer? The, the 
conventional meaning of course in the in the vedic context is people performed religious religious rituals we have seen this in the kathopanishad we were it's all about those rituals we were thinking we were studying all that a fire is lit a fire altar is built according to specifications um, a sacred fire is lit there are priests who chant the mantras offerings are poured into the mantras and uh, uh, there is a particular intention behind it the good karma generated from this will give me my desired object so on this is external yajna or external fire sacrifice but uh, there must come a time when this devout vedic fire sacrificer the religious person of those days when this person would uh, do it internally so instead of an external fire altar and, and a fire being lit so within oneself one would visualize the entire thing uh, that's a more advanced practice and that has carried over to modern hinduism you have an elaborate puja there's a deity and there are offerings and there are flowers and fruits and incense mantras are chanted um, you show the various uh, hand symbols the mudras and so on an elaborate puja is done but there is also manasa puja mental worship where everything is visualized offerings are visualized the deity is visualized the lotus in the heart is visualized the whole thing is mental so that's that's the preliminary meaning of the sac- the sacrifice or the ritual being performed internally in one's mind that's called sacrifice within oneself but that's not what is meant here this is higher this is philosophical this is metaphysical this is very deep what is meant here is we are pure consciousness and now with the appearance of a mind and a body this pure consciousness reflected in the mind as the reflected consciousness now identifies itself as a person when this person realizes i'm not the body i'm not the mind i am the witness consciousness when this person realizes shankaracharya sings mano buddhi ahankara chittani naham i'm not the mind not the intellect i'm not not the memory not even the ego what then what am i chidananda roopah shivoham shivoham i am of the nature of pure consciousness i am i am shiva i am shiva this realization where you sacrifice this apparent self into the real self where you merge this uh, i thought i was this person i merge my individuality or, or my reality back to the pure consciousness this is called atmayaji so basically the realization i am not this person i am the witness of this per- person i am not this limited being and the awareness which is appearing as this limited being just this realization itself is called the self sacrifice you sacrifice the lower self the apparent self the emergent self back into the background the ground of this uh, you know uh, what is what eckart calls maestro eckart calls the ground of my soul back into that and how do you merge it back by understanding by realizing this is called atmayaji and when he does this what happens um, you see the um, our likes and dislikes our fears psychologically this is what roots us in samsara i am this body i am uh, and i and mine this is my personality and now i there are things which i want and there is desire 
there are things and people and situations which i am scared of which i dislike there is repulsion dvesha so raga and dvesha and overall behind it all is fear fear is fundamental to the human psyche fear of many many things from physical fear of physical death to subtle things fear of being insulted fear of losing health um fear whatever all sorts of fears huge range of fears they give rise to samsara and modern psychologists agree entirely now what this atma yaji does is this is very beautiful that the object of attraction and the attraction are merged back into pure awareness behind the attraction and the um, object of attraction is pure awareness is in, in awareness only you become aware of that cookie in awareness only you become aware of the desire for the cookie if you if you focus back from the cookie and the desire for the cookie into the the awareness which is shining on that you have merged the cookie and the desire for the cookie back into the awareness it is in awareness only that i become aware of something that i dislike or someone i dislike and in that awareness only the feeling of dislike dvesha arises when i realize the light in which that disliked object is shining and the dislike or the hatred is shining that is called merging the um, object dvesha vishaya and the dislike dvesha back into consciousness when you do this and because i am not the little person there is nothing that i have got to be afraid of i the awareness i am not subject to birth i am not subject to aging not subject to death i am not subject to the passing moods fancies depressions miseries of the mind i illumine all of them i reveal all of them but i am not tainted by them so fear goes away i am beyond fear in fact enlightenment one of the descriptions of enlightenment is fearlessness when the emperor janaka attained enlightenment his master told him abhayam vai prapto si janaka oh emperor janaka you have attained fearlessness you didn't say you have attained brahman you are now enlightened uh, self realized whatever you have attained fearlessness so the atmayaji is free of raga dvesha and bhaya of uh, the attractions and the repulsions and the fear which characterizes samsara this is freedom freedom from samsara um then the next one i wanted to say was okay in the gita itself the result of this is mentioned of seeing all beings in the self and the self in all beings you see here itself we will do these verses later but 31st verse if you see 6 chapter 6 31st but just two verses ahead it says sarvatha vartamanopi sayogi mai vartate what is the result of this realization whatever be the condition whether you are in a hospital bed and um, dying at an old age or sitting in meditation giving up the body or somebody dies in an accident uh, or in the midst of plenty and fame and or in poverty and forgotten whatever be the condition even physically in a coma body is in a coma mind is shut down even that condition whatever is always in me he says this yogi is always in me in me means you are always brahman this is one result and the same thing 
In the 13th chapter, it says, in chapter 13, verse um, 23, chapter 13, it says, Sarvatha Vattamanopi Nasa Bhuyo Vijayate. Being Brahman in whatever condition, the result is this person will never be born again. Will never be born again. So whatever be the condition, as far as the world is concerned, as far as the body and mind is concerned, you are Brahman. This is called Jivan Mukti. In the while living, in the in this life, here itself. And the next thing is, after death, this one is never born again. This is called Videha Mukti. The, the meaning of these two, Jivan Mukti is liberated while living. Videha Mukti is freedom, um, the bodiless freedom. That means not to be born, not being born again. These are said to be the two results of uh, liberation, uh, of, of enlightenment. I mean, it's the same thing. You are Brahman, but practically it looks like these two things. As long as the body is there, this person is um, an enlightened person, liberated while living. This, um, um, one second. While the um, other one is after the death of this body, this is the last life. So this person will never be born in a limited, in, in a, in, as an individual again. This is called moksha. So while living, always, whatever the condition of life, you are Brahman. And after the death of this body, you are not born again. So this is the result. Jivan Mukti, Videha Mukti. Then another point I wanted to mention was um, if this is not realized, this means I am that reality in all beings, number one, and all beings are appearances in me. If you put them together, it becomes oneness. I'll repeat that. Um, I am the same in all beings. That is one. And those all beings, the moment I say all beings, there's a, there's a tinge of difference there. There are so many bodies and so many minds and so many non-living things. What are they? They are nothing other than I. I alone appear as that. Um, so this is oneness. Now suppose this is not there. Contrast it with our uh, pre-enlightenment stage. Our ordinary stage, the stage of samsara. What happens? There, there's no oneness. Their sat, existence, is an other to you. Chit, consciousness, is an other to you. Uh, ananda, bliss, is an other. When existence, sat, is an other, it's not me. Then I'm dependent. Uh, I, I am dependent on life and death. Then I, I struggle to live in this body. And I'm terrified of death. Because my existence depends on the other. On the continued existence of the body. On the continued existence of the mind. This quest for physical immortality, quest for uploading our mind to the cloud or whatever it is. What is, what is this? What does this show? It shows that I'm terribly dependent for my existence on something else. But when you are existence itself, you don't depend on something else. You are immortal. Your existence is assured because you are being. You are isness. Chit, consciousness, that there is this conscious being called God. If it is other than my consciousness, if it is a separate consciousness, then it's imagination. Even the very idea that there are so many conscious beings here, it's something that we infer. That as I am conscious, clearly within myself, all these people here looking at me, 
through Zoom, they also must be conscious unless they are zombies. So it's imagined. And there is a supreme conscious being called God. It's still imagined. If it, if chit or consciousness is an other, if ananda, bliss, is an other, it's not you, then you are needy. You become needy. I am going around with a begging bowl in the world. Give me some happiness. Give me some bliss. Give me some joy. Whereas what this one says is, that joy is your very nature. That chit or consciousness is you. And that existence, being, is you. It can never be lost. You are neither born nor will you ever die. Consciousness is ever revealed. You don't have to imagine it. It's, it is that which powers all imagination. Reveals everything. So it is continuously blazing forth right now. And bliss. We don't have to go around in the world begging from money or little appreciation, little attention, little relationship, little power, status for happiness. No. So this is the thing. The distinction between othering and oneness. And this is the teaching of oneness. Um, okay. Big point. So I was reading this um, great Swami, Akhandananda Saraswati, who lived in the mid-20th century and after that also. His teachings are mostly in Hindi and Sanskrit. So he says in his commentary on this verse, he says that this Sarvabhutasthamatmanam Sarvabhutani Chatmani, this is a Mahavakya. What is a Mahavakya? This is equivalent to our Mahavakya. What is Mahavakya? Those great sentences you find in the Upanishads, which sum up the entirety of Vedanta. That thou art. Tattvamasi. I am Brahman. Aham Brahmasmi. Like that. When you say Sarvabhutasthamatmanam, sarva what does it mean? So how is this a Mahavakya? Let's go into it. Sarvabhutasthamatmanam is you or I. My real nature, your real nature. And Sarvabhutani Chatmani, all beings in the self, that is God's real nature. And the two are one and the same. This is how it's a Mahavakya. Let's go into this, we'll see. So Sarvabhutasthamatmanam, in, in all beings, there is the Atman, the self. Moment you say the word bhuta, that's etymologically, it means an entity which comes into being, it's born and it, it, it arises, it's produced, it exists for some time, then it dies or it's destroyed. That's a bhuta. And they are they are many in number. That's why sarva, many, many bhuta. They're all different from each other. They're all different from each other. They come and go, they're born, they exist, they play around and they disappear. In all this changing multitude, there is one underlying unchanging reality. It is this one consciousness in all beings. See, when we investigate ourselves, what are we basically? You can't say this is body. No, more fundamentally is the fact that we are basically experience. Think about it this way. The most general description that we can give about ourselves is anubhuti, experience. Is it not so? You say, no, no, I'm this body. No. And this body is having an experience. No. This body is revealed to you in experience. It's an experience for you, this body. Thoughts. I am this person. That's an experience for you, being this person. Thoughts, emotions. There's an experience. So what is an experience? 
and experience is consciousness plus an object consciousness plus an object think about it you are awareness and an object comes up in you and then 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 the two come together it's called an experience it's like light and an object this is light all around suddenly an object comes it reflects light you see something similarly consciousness like a light is there always you are that then an object comes what's an object a sight a smell a taste um, a thought an emotion a memory a desire you have an experience you say i see i hear i smell i taste i touch i think i remember i desire i understand so consciousness plus object is experience and our life is only a series of experiences now see in all these experiences thoughts come and go consciousness is the same behind every thought is the same consciousness memories arise and disappear they fade away sometimes they started sometimes you remember or sometimes you cannot recall behind it all is the behind the functioning of the memory is consciousness behind the keen memory is consciousness and behind the fading memory loss of recall is consciousness consciousness does not become keen or dull it reveals the keen memory or the dull memory behind emotions all kinds of emotions happy and sad um you know angry and peaceful every kind of emotional state it there must be awareness behind all actions walking talking eating cooking jogging whatever you are doing this you and new york marathon is going to come so the huge preparations are going on here in um, central park so on sunday new york marathon so in jogging in marathon you are running in awareness is it it is has to be in awareness behind all actions behind waking dreaming even deep sleep is that one awareness one consciousness this one consciousness sarva bhutastham atma in all beings it is the same consciousness you might say in all my states there is the same consciousness how do i know it's the same in you because the consciousness in itself has no difference and the bodies are different minds are different but consciousness is not different this is the argument of advaita against sankhya anyway so one consciousness in all beings this is called sarva bhutastham atmanam bhuta born existing dying sarva difference many many difference when you use the sanskrit words tha it means it is unchangeably one and unchangeably uh, beyond any possibility of change so that one consciousness one awareness whatever you call it in the midst of the birth existence and deaths of all entities in the midst of the variety of those entities this is sarva bhutastham jatmanam now going further all these beings all these bodies minds objects universes objects which give us experience where are these objects in which screen is this movie playing here is the master stroke it is in the same consciousness it is in you and look at it in your experience it's a fact you look at in your experience where are the objects that you experience what I, what do i mean by this is is this object external this book it's an object it gives me an experience what experience i see this book now is this object outside my awareness or in my awareness 
What I mean is, my awareness is there, book is there, like the light. In a sense, this book is outside the light because the light can exist without the book and book can exist without the light. They're separate things. Light falls on the book and reveals it. So is my consciousness like that? Or is this book internal to my consciousness? What I mean is, do I have any sense of there was a book outside and here was my consciousness. Now the book has entered my consciousness. No. There is no, where is the limit of my consciousness? Where is the boundary of my awareness? Whatever I am aware of, there is no boundary there. You say, no, there is a boundary. You cannot see outside your room, Swami. But I, my, I cannot see outside my room. But I am aware. Here is the limit of my sight and there is something beyond this limit of my sight. That's still within my awareness. As the great unknown. It's not within my sight. That's why Vedanta makes a distinction between knower and consciousness. Knowing and awareness. Pramata and Chaitanya. This different difference is made. So there are things which are known and things which are unknown. Vedanta never suggests that if something you don't know does not exist. No. What Vedanta suggests is everything exists in awareness. Some of it is known and a vast amount of it is unknown. When awareness deploys the mind and the instruments of knowledge, it knows something. Otherwise, everything is presented to that awareness as a, as a general mass of the unknown. But other than awareness, there is no limit to this awareness. There is no margin to this awareness. So all the beings, not only is awareness one and the same in all beings, but all of these beings are in awareness, are indistinguishable from awareness, are appearances of awareness. Three stages. All beings in this universe are presented to you the awareness, in you the awareness, as nothing but you the awareness. It appears as different from you. None of these things appear as awareness. But they appear as computers, books, people. But they are nothing other than this awareness shining forth as all these things. Therefore, all beings are in awareness means all beings are nothing other than the awareness. They're not, you don't literally say all beings are awareness. It doesn't seem so. It doesn't seem very logical to say that. But they are nothing other than awareness can be logically proved. It can be proved logically, it can be proved, it can be tracked in our own experience. I'm using words carefully here. Now put it together. You are the one consciousness in all beings. This is your real nature. And all beings, this entire universe is an appearance in consciousness. That one consciousness in which all beings are appearing and you the consciousness behind this body, mind, all experiences, this one consciousness. This is the meaning of Aham Brahmasmi or that thou art. If you just remain with I am the consciousness which is illumining all the activities in this body and mind, that's Sankhya. That's where Drig Drishya Viveka, the separation of the seer and the seen takes you up to that much. But what about this vast universe? This universe is an appearance in consciousness. So this cosmos, take the example of our dreams. This is a good example. Suppose I'm walking around in my dream. I don't know it's a dream. I am just, I think I'm just taking a walk in the park. Here is the park. Here are people, here are carriages, horse carriages. And, and so I was amazed to see rickshaws in New York, you know. So there are rickshaws. But the rickshaws here are all for rich people. Um, so they charge you 
$4.99 per person per minute. So if you take a, uh, so $5, let's say two people sit and go in a rickshaw for 30 minutes, uh, you get charged $300, <laughs> which is more than the price you paid for, paid for the air ticket to come into Manhattan in the first place from many places in USA. So um, all of these are there. I'm seeing all of them. Now, and I also feel I am a person here and I'm aware. But when I wake up, I realize that person I felt and the awareness there and all those things that person was seeing in the dream, the whole thing was an appearance in me, the dreamer. That's what I realized. Exactly like that, everything that you see here and you yourself are this one consciousness. This is the meaning of Aham Brahmasmi Atattvamasi. That's why that Swami called it a Mahavakya. When you say Sarvabhutasthamatmana, I mean all changing multifarious beings, one consciousness. And all changing multifarious beings in that one consciousness, not distinguishable from that one consciousness. So you have got oneness. This is called, this is, that's why it's a Mahavakya. It does not stop with Sankhya. It does not stop with the realization of, of uh, one consciousness within. Then he goes on. Ikshate yoga yuktatma sarvatra samadarshana. Ikshate, the Sanskrit word ikshate means sees, realizes. Realizes this person who is yoga, two words are used, yoga yukta, who is in yoga. And sarvatra samadarshana, seeing the same in everything. These two are the, the two states. Samadhi, being in samadhi. So the mind, this is the samadhi which Krishna has been teaching Arjuna all throughout in the sixth chapter. Being in samadhi, shutting down the senses, withdrawing inwards, focusing, um, emptying the mind and becoming aware of awareness. I am the self. Chidananda Rupa Shiboham. Staying with that. You get a mind gets absorbed in samadhi. Like the flame, which unflickering flame of a lamp in a windless place. In that state, Brahman and Brahman alone, that infinite consciousness alone, but objectless. And then he says, Sarvatra Samadarshana. This next word he uses is startling. Suddenly everything, Sarvatra means everywhere, Samadarshana means seeing the same. So everywhere and time and space and objects have all appeared. Now they have all appeared and yet this person sees the same thing. Which, he, which same thing? The same realization which he had in Samadhi. He sees that. Sri Ramakrishna put it very simply. That um, when I close my eyes, God is there. And if I open my eyes, God is not there. What kind of God would that be? So this, uh, the same God with eyes closed, the same God with eyes open. What Ramana Maharshi called uh, Sahaja Samadhi. The natural samadhi. So samadhi, not only just the yogic withdrawal and absorption within, but natural, with eyes open, with the mind thinking, with the body working, everywhere the same, in the midst of work. Brahma Arpanam Brahma, with that verse, it says, Brahma Karma Samadhina, the one who sees Brahman in all actions. That means you are acting, you are actually doing work. That there is that one reality all the time. In the midst of the active mind. It's not that the mind becomes very serene and absorbed. Then you can't work. The mind is furiously active. 
you may be doing office work or um, housework or whatever it is and yet you know it is the same reality so this is knowledge see here is this difference between yogic samadhi and advaitic samadhi yogic samadhi is control of the mind it is generated held on and dissipates it comes and it goes advaitic samadhi is knowledge you realize you are brahman and that brahman does not come and go does not arise or dissipate once you realize what that is it's there all the time it's always available or somebody says there is a website for that never not here very nice phrase never not here it is always here instead of saying always here positively it's even more accurate to say never not here always here somewhat means that you are always thinking about it you may not think about it do you always so i'm sarva priyananda do i always think i'm sarva priyananda i'm sarva priyananda i have to practice sarva priyananda samadhi otherwise the sarva priyananda will disappear no it's not going anywhere unfortunately so <laughs> i don't have to practice samadhi on sarva priyananda it's always never not here it's always available so that is the meaning of sarvatra samadarshana ikshate yoga yuktatma in samadhi and out of samadhi why this is important is in the second chapter arjuna had asked krishna the the description of the enlightened one he called it stabilized wisdom it's very evocative for a non dualist because after getting a breakthrough after clarity dawns the next complaint is it's not stable it comes and goes i keep forgetting or it slips away it doesn't actually that's still the mind but still when you say stabilized wisdom that means a jivan mukta who is actually liberated by living now arjuna asks how does this person walk kim prabhashet how does he talk how does he interact with sense objects and how does he meditate so one is meditative state and the other one is the uh, engaged state in sanskrit samadhistha vyuthana samadhistha absorbed in samadhi vyuthana arising from samadhi so the two words here is, uh, refer respectively to two of the, these two yoga yukta means absorbed in samadhi and uh, sarvatra samadarshana seeing the same reality everywhere is arising from samadhi because everywhere all objects are there which means you're already active you're seeing you're interacting with the world and yet you see it's the same reality and what is that reality it's you this is the realization of the advaitic brahman and that swami who gave all these things he said in hindi very um, rhetorically very powerful it may sound shocking it's not meant as a criticism of any particular path but he says this not notice what he says he says what kind of enlightenment have you got do you have you got this enlightenment after many spiritual practices i here in this body i am free now i have realized i am brahman and there those people in there those bodies they have not done spiritual practices they are far behind they are not liberated this is liberation with respect to one body in hindi he puts it uh, ye ye bhed gyani hai ya abhed gyani hai is this a, the knower of difference or the knower of non duality doesn't have the same punch in english so uh, are you and what have you realized you have realized 
difference. You have realized duality. Notice how tiny your realization is. I am the one who has realized in this. My realization is centered around one body. In this body is the realized one which I am. And in all those bodies are not the, the ignorant ones who have not done spiritual practice. They are in bondage. No. That's a body-centric realization. Mind-centric realization. I have practiced the samadhi taught by Krishna. And now in this uh, samadhistha mind, mind absorbed in samadhi, stilled in samadhi, this is realization, enlightenment, liberation. Depends on a mind. Depends on the peace and lack of peace in one mind. No, not even that. So this teaching, all beings in the self and the self in all beings, it goes beyond that. It, it makes us rise above a body-centric realization, a mind-centric realization, even a samadhi-centric realization. This realization is a realization of the reality, which is always there. How is it different? After all spiritual practices, when I find that I am enlightened, realize, what will it be like? It will be like there is this one reality. It's not that those are people who are not enlightened yet and I, I, I am so enlightened. One theologian, he says, what are the joys of heaven? What are the joys of heaven? When you go after death, you go to heaven. So the theologian said one of the joys is from heaven, you look down upon the suffering people in hell and you delight in it. And so that is one of the perks of being in heaven. Is not very heavenly at all. <laughs> but, so you don't feel that, oh, there are all these uh, limited beings who are not enlightened. No, I realize Brahman and Brahman alone exists. All these limited beings and the not realization is an appearance. It's not that they are not enlightened, they're not free. They are free because they are Brahman. I know. They, they are pretending not to know. <laughs> That's all. That's the only difference. After Samadhi, I, I get this insight. I am the witness consciousness. I am the one reality in all beings. All beings are in me. Then, it is not dependent on the Samadhi anymore. Whether this particular mind goes into Samadhi, arises from Samadhi, is restless, is at peace, I am ever the same. Not a body-dependent enlightenment. Not a mind-dependent enlightenment. Not a Samadhi-dependent enlightenment. That is true enlightenment. That is Advaitic enlightenment. Um, one, how are we doing for time? Almost gone. It's a big topic. I'll just touch upon it and then I'll stop. Samadarshana. Literally it means seeing the same Brahman everywhere. But the word Darshana is also the word for philosophy in India. And it also means seeing. So the meaning of uh, philosophy in India is seeing. I mentioned it in other contexts, but let me repeat it here. What I want to say is this. First of all, when we were taught philosophy as novices, we were always taught uh, Western philosophy is philosophy, love of wisdom, philosophia. And Indian philosophy is darshana, seeing the ultimate reality. And, uh, and these two are different. Uh, so Western philosophy is thinking about uh, subjects of philosophical interest. But no, I mentioned this earlier also. I read this in a book by Luke Ferry uh, in his History of Thought, which is a sort of a French introduction to Western philosophy. There he says, philosophy is not the right term. The right term is theory. And then he etymologically derives theory 
as Theos Oran or something like that, which means seeing the ultimate reality, seeing the divinity, seeing the ultimate reality. It's exactly the same meaning as Darshana. So Darshana, seeing the um, Brahman everywhere, but also philosophy. Now, the point I want to make here is, in all Vedantic texts, you will find many philosophical viewpoints are discussed. Why are they discussed? And how does it help you to come to the Advaitic realization? So this Swami, who I'm quoting, Akhandan Saraswati, he says, it is actually important to get a general idea of these philosophical viewpoints and see why they are not right or how, what is the particular perspective from which they are speaking and rise above that. If you don't, he says, I, he says, I've seen many people in my life who after studying a little bit of Vedanta here, a little bit of this and that, finally slip back ultimately to a gross materialistic perspective because they have not evaluated these philosophical perspectives. Materialist perspective is a perspective, but it's a perspective. You have to see what, from what, what point of view it is said and what are its limitations and how Advaita helps you to come up, uh, rise above that. I remember when I was a novice, another uh, brahmachari, another novice monk, very brilliant young man, once he confronted me with this question, why do we study the charvakas, the mimamsakas, the Buddhists and the Jains and the Sankhyas? Have you ever come across a mimamsaka on the street outside who, who catches hold of you and attacks non-dualism? No. In, for the most part, these are all dead and gone They're in dusty old books. They don't exist in modern life anymore. So why study them? The reason that the young monk told me, the reason is there is a charvaka within us. There is a, um, a subjective idealist, Vigyanavada Buddhist within us. There is uh, uh, an emptiness philosopher, Shunyavadi, within us. And unless these aspects are addressed, understood and transcended, they will, uh, they will bug you. They'll come back, the Americanism, they'll come back to bite you and later on in philosophical life. There are any number of intellectuals, people who have studied philosophy, Vedanta and all, and sort of remain some kind of materialist. So darshana, samadarshana, you have to rise above this. What I was going to say is just indicate it and stop. There's no time. Um, Shankara, Advaitin, he criticizes the Buddhist Vigyanavadin. What is this all about? Swami Vivekananda says in one place, the ancient uh, battle between the realists and the idealists you know, in ancient India, this is being played out all over again in the West. So Bishop Berkeley's subjective idealism, everything is in the mind. And uh, the realists who say, though, there's an external real world outside the mind. This battle between realists and idealists, it was an ancient battle in India more than a thousand years ago. The Hindu dualists, like the Nyaya philosophers, Vaisheshika philosophers, who were realists. The world exists outside your mind. Yes, you have a mind. In your mind, there are thoughts. But there are, there are entities outside the, outside the mind. There's your own body for one. There are other people. There are other objects. There's a universe out there. And your thoughts are about that universe. But the universe doesn't exist in your thought. 
It, it has its independent existence, a common sense approach, you might say, which is very fashionable today because of the prestige of science and also idealism is out of the is out of fashion and realism is in fashion these days what did the idealist say the idealist says that um, everything is in the mind look every experience that you have is in the mind you cannot leave the mind out of any experience and because you have had no experience ever it's impossible to have an experience without the mind then you have no right to speak about objects existing apart from the mind. Even if they do exist, there's a subtle distinction. Even if they do exist, you have no access to them. Only thing you have access to are the contents of your own mind. Think about it, is it true or not? So this was Bishop Berkeley's big uh, thing, subjective idealism. And a thousand years before Bishop Berkeley, more than a thousand years, the Buddhist Vigyanavadis, they said this. And there's a huge centuries-long debate between the Hindu realists and the Vigyanavadis, you would expect Shankara being a non-dualist, Advaitin, to be sympathetic to the Buddhist idealist. Because, after all, what does Advaita say? Just now we read, all uh, the self in all beings, all beings in the self, aren't you saying the entire universe is appearing in consciousness? The Buddhist is just saying a, a, a variation of the same thing. No. Shankara takes up the Buddhist idealist and subjects it to a very forensic analysis. Every argument of the Buddhist is taken and taken apart. And Shankara uses very realist arguments. He seems to say there is a real world outside your mind. The world is not a creation of your mind. And there are beautiful arguments. I was just reading, it's coincidence that I'm talking about it today. I was reading a paper by Professor Arendam Chakravarti, uh, The Idealist Refutation of Idealism. So Shankara being an idealist, he refutes the Buddhist idealism. But why? And why am I bringing it up here? Why does he refute the Buddhist idealist? Because there's a huge mistake one might make. Go back to the dream example. Let's forget that we, do, we, don't, we, we don't know it's a dream. You are in your own dream. You're walking around meeting people. Things are good and bad are happening. And you don't know you are dreaming. Now, what is the experience like? There are people there. There are objects there. There's a virtual dream world. You don't know it's a dream world. And you are there. There's the person. In Sanskrit, they call it Swapna Purusha. The person in the dream. Who's walking around interacting. A lot like our modern virtual environments. You are introduced into a virtual environment. And it's there. Now, it feels like there is a world outside. And I am here. Here is my body. Here is my mind. And there's a world outside. Now, it is not true for that person to claim that this world outside is in my mind. It's not. This person and this person's mind and the world he's inhabiting, the whole thing is in the dreamer's mind. But not that this particular person's world is in his own mind. The dream individual and the dream world, the dream world is not in the dream individual's mind. It's in the, the dream individual and the dream world are both in the dreamer's mind. Similarly, come back to the waking world. The, it's not that the waking world is a creation of Sarvapriyananda's mind. Not at all. In that sense, Shankara Advaita Vedanta accepts the realist position, but goes further and says, the so-called real world and this individual who is experiencing the real world outside, not just mind, real world there, the whole thing is an appearance in consciousness, which I, the individual, really am. 
So this thing Shankara wants to prove. He doesn't want to say that the world is a figment of your individual imagination. No. So, uh, samadarshana. You, you realize the one reality um, uh, behind everything through this approach. What will be the result of this? We will see next. The 31st verse, um, 30th and 31st verse, we'll see. I think we just saw the 29th verse. 30th, 31st verses, we'll see. And then the 32nd verse is very interesting. You see, uh, it is what is called the golden rule. It's there in all religions of the world. It's one common, the highest teaching of all religions, highest ethical teaching of all religions, and it's found in all religions. And here in Hinduism, we'll find it here in the 32nd verse. It's there in the United Nations. If you go to the third floor of the headquarters, UN headquarters, there's a um, half-ton mosaic, uh, which, is, which shows the golden rule. Treat others as you would have them treat you. And here, it, the golden rule is derived from uh, Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta. So that we will come, we'll see. All right. Sorry for this long rant. I really like this. Uh, <laughs> um, this verse. So, Prabir Basu says, Bhagavad Gita 5.18, which also talks about Samadarshina. It's the same thing. The same theme comes up multiple times in the Gita. Dima says, if I understood correctly, in order to experience itself, higher self needs enlightened jiva, then why such a precious entity dissolves after the death of the physical body? No. You, as pure consciousness, you are experiencing yourself throughout the entire universe. You see, in our state, it seems like that Brahman, pure consciousness, whatever you call it, needs me to experience itself. Actually, it's the other way around. I need it to experience anything at all. To have, give anything existence and to illumine anything at all. I need it. We need it. It does not need any of us. It's perfectly all right in the, you know, when the entire universe collapses, pralaya, and there's no universe, there's no bodies, minds, no living beings. Brahman is perfectly all right. It's no less. And when the entire universe is there, and all this is going on, Brahman hasn't increased an ayata. It's the same, same infinity. Rick says, some say that things only come into existence when someone perceives them. I think you're saying Vedanta disagrees with that. In general, yes. So they have to be careful here. In general, yes. Vedanta disagrees with them. Uh, Vedanta says, just treat it as your common sense approach. Things exist. You experience them. And uh, then that gives you the experience of things. But you, the experiencer, and the existing things are none other than the underlying Brahman. So in that sense, they are all one reality. So that's why the two-level uh, truth is important. But why am I careful here? There is a flavor of Vedanta, which says exactly, exactly what you just said. Things pop into existence only because we perceive them, exactly like the dream. So in dreams, what happens? Things pop into existence because we perceive them in the dream. Otherwise, they don't exist. The moment you stop dreaming, everything pops out of existence. Uh, so that, that particular flavor of Vedanta called Drishti Shrishti Vada, and the name is very evocative. Um, 
seeing is creation. The vada means the position that seeing is creation, Perceive, perceiving is existence. It's very much like subjective idealism. But here, it's not the mind. Both mind and, and the world, they pop into existence because you are this one consciousness. But when this consciousness is not objectifying things, the objects don't exist anymore. And that is uh, a sub-school, a very radical kind of Vedanta. And if you pursue it a little further, you will see it leads straight to what is called Eka Jiva Vada, that there is only one being, only one sentient being. There is only one. See, when you are dreaming, you are there and there are many people in the dream, but when you wake up, you realize there was only really one person in the dream, you the dreamer. And all those persons in the dream were in your dream. You, you were only one. And among them, you were only one. So in this, all of us sitting here and the 7 billion people on this earth, presumably, and billions of other beings, who is that one being who is dreaming all this? When that one being stops dreaming, we'll all disappear because we don't exist other than that being. Who is that? Who is that guy? And Advaita says, it's you. Which you? Any, any one of you. But then how can it be? Then there are so many of us. No, there's only one of you. Why this? Why, why are these separate um, philosophies there? Which one is true then? Uh, is uh, seeing, is uh, creation true or creation exists before seeing? None of them are true. You have to see the Vedantic position. None of them are true. The Vedantic position is that things do not come into existence. Nothing has ever come into existence. Brahman is the only thing that ever which can be said to exist or it is existence itself. That's the only truth. To realize this, that, that truth, we have these different pathways, these tracks. These are methodologies. They are not claimed to be the truth. Do things come into existence when I perceive them? Or do they exist before I perceive them? Advaita actually will say, neither. Neither has anything come into existence when you perceive them. Nor do things exist when you do not perceive them. Because nothing exists at all except Brahman. That's Advaita's position, actual position. And all of these, the rest, because we are a little nuts. So Advaita comes down to our level and develops this, these nutty paradigms according to our, the flavor of nut we like and then guides us back uh, to that reality. These are called prakriyas, methodologies, algorithms. Alpana says, after understanding this and being fully convinced about oneness, how to make this experience mine? That is the whole technique. Uh, purification of the mind, um, concentration of mind, uh, then the study of Vedanta, which will lead to illumination. Patrick says, can you explain again the difference between everything is conscious? and everything is nothing other than consciousness. Right. So everything is nothing other than consciousness means consciousness alone exists. But when you say everything is consciousness, it means somehow everything exists and sort of made up of conscious consciousness. It's not that there are things and they are made up of consciousness or consciousness, um, you know, that God is all beings. This is that, that famous uh, poem, Mary Hale wrote to Swami Vivekananda, I have understood what you taught. You have taught that everything is God. Swami Vivekananda wrote back saying that I have never taught such strange doctrines that everything is God. And she was stunned. She said, you said it. She said, no. What I said was, God only is. Everything is not. 
another way of saying this is everything is nothing but god or everything is nothing but consciousness with a capital c rodrigo says each veda is a text and also a deity and its shakti yes vedic mantras are texts with deity and shakti in vedanta the mahavakyas are super compressed information a particular teaching of the best of a particular upanishad and we actively do shravana manana nididhyasa is there any value in a mechanical japa of mahavakya ah so japa repetition no repetition of a mahavakya will at the most will help you to remember the mahavakya but mahavakya is mahavakya means that thou art i am brahman like that it is meant to be realized not repeated repetition is part of meditation repetition is part of japa and mahavakya is part of gyana knowledge a very nice story in this regard swami atmapriyanandam which whom many of you know he gave a talk here he is the head of our university in india um so when he was a young monk i mean he just got his ordination as a monk swami gambhiranand ji in fact the one who has translated these upanishads swami gambhiranand ji was the president of the order and he had given ordination to that batch of monks where swami atmapriyanand ji became the, a monk and so they received the mahavakya in our tradition it is aham brahmasmi i am brahman this is from the brihadaranyaka upanishad so this was one of the questions exactly this question which um, rodrigo has asked this question was asked by some of those newly minted monks to um the president to the guru and there the system is all of you don't get to speak you have a spokesperson so swami atmapriyandi was a spokesperson who who you give your questions to him and he, he presents it to the master are we how many times are we supposed to repeat the mahavakya japa how many times repetition and swami gambhiranji was famously you know uh, laconic very few words he said it is not for repetition it is for realization are there any other questions no you may go <laughs> so famous words it's not for repetition it is for realization explain he is not for one for explaining you understand what is meant it's a pretty clear statement but yes so that you don't forget it i remember when we got our ordination as sanyasa something like this came up somebody asked so how many times should we repeat these particular mantras including the mahavakya and swami ranganathananda ji who gave us sanyasa uh, i still remember he was very casual about it he said um three times 10 times 12 times and we had a novice master who guided us through this who was very strict he knew that we, we were such lazy fellows he is so he told the swami swami please say 108 times we had to make him say it so that it becomes a commandment for the rest of us because he was afraid we'd forget of the whole thing <laughs> why was he so casual because it's not a point of repetition is not the point for a mantra you must repeat don't don't forget never mix these two up a mantra has to be repeated otherwise there's no power in it i mean there's a power but it will not work until you repeat it its power comes from repetition meditation has to be repeated mantra has to be repeated And knowledge has to be generated knowledge has to arise
Parul says, I am in you, you are all in me. It's often misused by novice learners like me to not own some uncomfortable truths about myself and seek solace. And it's not me, it's, it's I. I believe there's a paradox after this. Please, what do I keep in mind in analyzing myself and my reactions to others who are on a very different path? Yes. So this particular person, once you realize this oneness, from that perspective, you can deal with this person. The person who is Parul, um, you can deal with this person, the ups and downs, the, the quirks, the individual eccentricities of that particular mind will be pretty clear to you. And because you know deep inside, I am not limited to being just Parul. You'll be able to deal with the problems of Parul much more effectively. See, the likes and dislikes of Parul, the fears of Parul are not your own. But they are still there at that level, at, at the Parul body, mind, at the, that personality. And you can deal with them. You can try to rise above them, purify the mind, discipline it, analyze and uh, see what can be done. All those things become much easier uh, to be uh, if, you, if you go through this process. If, if you are centered in this, all beings are in me, I am in all beings, you're centered in oneness. Uh, Shweta Singhiti says, can you explain this in respect of Eka Jeeva Vada? As you noticed, I have that question Rodrigo, no, Rick asked, that leads to Eka Jeeva Vada, that there's one Jeeva, one sentient being. That, remember, that's a, a radical kind of Advaita. I would recommend you not go down that particular rabbit hole. It's pretty suited to monks living by themselves. You can see why they would come up with something like that. Notice that Shankaracharya generally does not teach that. The traditional teaching of Advaita Vedanta, the mainstream, Gita, for example, um, Upanishad commentaries, they are all much more mainstream and they accept that there are many uh, jivas. Why do they do that? Because it's a much easier way to start off. That's our common sense approach. I am the only being. Then you begin to treat this waking world as a dream. There can be damaging consequences of that uh, for people who are not ready to face it. Kiran says, you mentioned everything is consciousness and can be proven logically. Are you preferring to, uh, referring to the logical steps you went over in your talk on non-dual meditation? Yes. Um, also, in there's a talk I gave recently in Santa Barbara. I think all beings in the self, the self in all, exactly like this thing. Mm. Seven steps I delineated. Start with absolute material reality and you end up with consciousness alone. Seven steps. I have explained them step by step there. This was in Santa Barbara just a few months ago. Um, yes. Shweta says, then Ika Jiva Vada may be the shortest way back to Brahman. Yes. And um, even higher than that is the Ajata Vada. But the higher the route, the more uh, uh, uncomfortable and scary and prone to slipping and falling and dangerously close to insanities also it is. So you have to be careful there. All right. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Sri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu